And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Filtering in Farhan as I yell at him across the room. Welcome, everybody. Here we are following a Vancouver Canucks victory, a 5-3 victory over the Montreal Canadiens at home. Bruce Boudreaux postgame described it as sloppy, which matches sort of my general perception of what we saw. You know, for me, this was the type of game that I actually loved to see from a team because I didn't think the Canucks were on their game. I thought their... Overall play, in terms of the passing, in terms of the sharpness of the finishing, in terms of the sharpness of the defensive game, the execution, I thought a lot of it was a little bit off. Just a little bit off. But their forecheck completely overwhelmed the Montreal Canadiens early. They controlled the entire game 5-on-5. They won the special teams battle. Even though I think you could say that Sam Montembeau the Montreal Canadiens goaltender had the better game than Demko. The ice was just so tilted that it didn't matter. All night, the Canucks felt inevitable. It was not the sexiest win. It was not the most high-octane offensive performance we've seen from this Canucks team. And I like that because they won with structure. They won in a way that felt doable again, whether you're on or off, whether you're feeling good or bad, whether your goaltender is tired or rested. If you can play like that, you're going to win eight out of 10. And that's something that even as this team has racked up wins, I don't know that we've seen enough of. To start the homestand with that, a performance that was, you know, ultimately so successful, despite being not their best, despite not being electric, I think that's a great way, a great way to start this homestand and sets up nicely for, for the game that, in my opinion, I'm, I'm going to be honest with the VIPs, in my opinion, this game on Friday against the Washington Capitals, that's the toughest game on this homestand, right? Because the two actual contenders that are coming in, right, the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Calgary Flames, they're going to be on the second leg of back-to-backs. Tonight's win sets up nicely for you know, that Friday game. And if they win that game, if they win that game, then you're really cooking with oil. You've got a ton of either either tired or inferior opponents to close out this homestand and to close out this stretch before the deadline. All right. So as a reminder to everybody, uh, by the way, Farhan, you, are you on? You on? I, I can't hear you. 
I can't hear you, bud. Are you sure you're on? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? I don't know, man. I, I, I can't hear you on my headphones anyway. Maybe they're not working. Well, I, I feel like I'm talking here. So long like as our... There we go. I'm getting a level, I, so I'm hoping yeah. that I've done this right. No, you're set. You're set. That's hey, me. I'm the one who's what? confused. So, look, fantastic effort. Everything you said certainly applies. The underlying number backs, numbers back it up in terms of um, uh, shots for and just their ability to control shot share, their ability to, to generate scoring chances, 30 to 11 on scoring chances, 18 to 5 on high danger scoring chances, you know, because you talk about winning with structure. And this has kind of been a game that the Canucks – on most of this post-Boudreau bump, or certainly more than a bump now, but a run, it's been a lot about Thatcher Demko. And this game wasn't necessarily that. And we're not saying that Thatcher Demko played poorly, but you could argue that both goals he potentially would want back, certainly the second goal. And you know, we've seen a scenario where the Canucks have been able to have some run support, have some goal support for him. And he's given up 12 goals in his last four games. 12 goals in his last four games, an average of three per Nonetheless, he's 4-0 in those games. So he's won his last six starts. He's playing well enough. He's making the saves at the right time. You go back to the Toronto game and how good he was in the third period or in the last five minutes especially. You go to this game when the game was tied and he was able to make some big saves. So now it's more about timely saves as opposed to simply carrying this team completely to victory. You want to talk about a guy that's carrying this team right now. How about JT Miller? Ridiculous. You know, we talked to him this morning about how – confident he is right now and the number of roles he's occupying with this team in all situations five on five power play penalty kill late in games leadership in the locker room all of it <laughs> he's doing all of that and what does he do he goes out tonight and he ups that one more with i think the third four point game of his career had his hands all over this victory you said it earlier that it was kind of a weird game as much as the canucks dominated and all of a sudden jt miller decided to call goal Comes off the bench, steals the puck. He says afterwards he thinks he should have got called for a slash. Fortunately for the Canucks, he didn't. Comes in, and he says he thought the defenseman might cut him off, so he shot as early as he did. No, no, no. That was a shot where he just says, I'm JT Miller. I am a badass right now, and I'm going to put this in from outside the hash marks. And he just ripped it. And, you know, he is playing with confidence. He's doing everything for this team. Elias Pettersson uh, is playing at a high, high level. You noticed it early in this game that he was just aggressive. He was attempting to be dynamic. He was being creative. He's everything we've seen from Petey the last five or six weeks that we weren't seeing earlier in the year. He was all of that. Um, his line was effective and noticeable. And, uh, you know, not necessarily in love with Bo Horvat's game tonight, but in terms of the two offensive drivers, and even Brock Besser, uh, you talked about it earlier during the game, that just he is noticeable. You know, he got the one goal on the power play, but even before that, he was generating. Uh, he, his hands were... Uh, were, were quick, they were comfortable, he was, you know, in position, uh, he did a lot of good things, he was physical, so, you know, their key offensive drivers were that tonight, and as a result, like, even when their goaltender was just okay, they managed to score five goals and, and start to hold and stand off the way they need to. Yeah, so let me take a sec and sort of rewind, reset, welcome everybody to the live, live bandcast, thank you for joining us, we are so grateful to have your support as always. We're joined by Harmon Dial. He's on the stage with us. I'm going to turn it over to him in the meantime. But as we go through this, if you want to ask us a question, you can raise your hand. At some point, we'll turn this into an interactive forum. 
have everyone up on the stage who raises their hand and will answer your Canucks questions or just let you have the mic and share a take. Um, in the meantime, though, uh, use the chat function. Share your thoughts with us. Thank you so much for joining us. We're, we're so appreciative. All right. Harmon Dial was really impressed, I know, because I sit next to him in the press box, by what he saw to Brock Besser tonight. Harmon, until the third period when JT Miller took over, was Brock Besser the best Canucks skater on the night? 100%. And it felt like one of those games where I was thinking to myself, man, Besser really deserves a goal here because he started it off, I think, um, early in the game. He had a backhander off the post. Um, he had the two-on-one chance where he drew um, a penalty. And then there was also, earlier in the, in the second period, um, just a few moments before his goal, actually, he had a dash through the middle of the ice. He kind of cut to the inside and had a wicked release from the slot. And I was thinking, man, he's just on. And um, there are some games where you watch Besser play and he can be, you can tell when he's off versus when he's on based off of how quickly he's kind of, I think, making sometimes decisions and the overall pace of his play. And I just felt like he was sharp um, right from the outset, outset of this game. And it, it felt like an inevitability that if he kept generating chances like this, he was eventually going to find one um, to go in, in the back of the net. And um, it was huge for this team. And I think it kind of just underscores how this game to me was just one where Vancouver's top offensive guns were, were too much for Montreal to handle. And uh, obviously this is a Canadiens team that doesn't really just have the offensive fire, firepower up front to match the Canucks at this stage. We obviously spoke about JT Miller and the four-point night, but the power play coming to a couple, coming through a couple of times, um, the moments where Besser took over, the moments where Pedersen took over, and even, for instance, like Garland in the second period had a bunch of chances, and um, I thought Hoaglander was on point. It just felt like a lot of Vancouver's top six players were, were really feeling it tonight. And I think Besser for the first, first two periods... Um, it was full marks for his performance. How good, how much was this because the Canucks played as well as they did, or how much of this was the Habs just surprised us by laying a bit of an egg tonight? I mean, look, the they Habs were dreadful. On Sunday. The Habs got in on Sunday, which is generally a bad thing for visiting teams. Now, I know we're in a COVID environment, which we're slowly coming out of, so I'm not saying, I'm just saying they could have been out at a local establishment. You never know. But certainly, <laughs> certainly they, didn't, they didn't turn in the performance that we expected based on what we've seen from them since Marty St. Louis took over as head coach. I thought they were dreadful. Like, I thought that was, you know, other than the Canucks game against the Penguins on Rogers Green Ice in early December, one of the worst performances we've seen from a team. Um, now, it looked better than that on the scoreboard. They had a chance late, but I think that's largely because Sam Montembeau was on one tonight, at least until he got ventilated by Pedersen and Miller in quick succession shooting at the same sort of hole shooting glove side high on him off the rush. But look, no shame in getting beaten by Miller and Besser <laughs> in that, in those, or sorry, by Miller and Pedersen in those circumstances. Those are two of the best shooters in the league. Uh, Sam Montembeau made it look a lot better than it was for the Habs. I thought they had absolutely no answer for the Canucks forecheck. And yeah, I thought they were really, really bad tonight. Like they looked, I did not expect the Habs to look like one of the worst teams in the league tonight, they did. They really did. They were not full value for their performance. And one other thing that was sort of a surprise to me, gentlemen, was that Rogers Arena was kind of 
Like the atmosphere at Rogers Arena was notable because there wasn't one. Right? It was quiet. It was kind of dead in here. And that hasn't been the case with most of the post-pandemic crowds. I feel like they've been pretty raucous. It was restrained at Rogers Arena this evening. And it, 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 in some ways, maybe that's because the Canucks didn't blow the door open until late. But it was a very interesting night out, I thought. And, and, and partly maybe because Habs fans kind of knew that aside from their goalie, uh, their team didn't have much tonight. One other player who I think jumped out at me was Nils Hoaglander. You know, he was another guy that was noticeable early in this game. He had a few scoring chances. He seems to to really be finding chemistry right now with Pedersen. I think I think that line. I mean, we're seeing it so much from Pedersen and Hoaglander did score the other night. But I think I think that line is going to be a, a a really really big factor for this team over this homestand. Yeah, I think you're right, and you know, all of this dovetails nicely with the fact that we're, what, 10 days out now from the NHL trade deadline? And look, it is quiet, quiet around this team right now. You know, uh, the fact is, is that I don't get the sense that Patrick Alvin or Jim Rutherford's phones have been buzzing off the hook. I think this team, I think it's quiet around this team. I think it's quiet around the league. And, you know, I took JT Miller aside after he spoke tonight after his availability concluded, because I didn't want to ask him a deadline question following a game, <clears throat> following a big win, following a four-point night on camera. That's not fair to do to a guy, especially a guy, you know, I, I have a pretty good relationship with and a fair bit of trust with uh, in JT. But I, I wanted to ask him because tonight the Canucks played a game against a Montreal Canadiens team that has who is their president of, or vice president. Uh, he's got a weird title, doesn't he? He's not their president. He's not their GM. He's their executive, whatever, of hockey decisions. But it's Jeff Gordon, who was the Rangers GM, who, along with Glenn Saylor, put his name on a letter dismantling a playoff team in very similar circumstances to where the Canucks are, right? Uh, and one of the first moves to come out of that was trading JT Miller in a deal with Ryan McDonough to the Tampa Bay Lightning. And I wanted to ask Miller about it because there's been so much talk about it, and Miller has said the right things. He doesn't believe he's getting traded. I don't think he's wrong, by the way. And, you know, he was measured. He was measured in his commentary, but he was also clear that from a player's perspective, it was weird. It was a weird thing to go through. And, you know, he's not looking at this season. He's not looking at what this team has done as like the players earn a chance to see where they can take this run. It's not even about that. Um, you know, if management has a certain vision of what way they'll go, players players in JT Miller's view, they can't complain about that. They get paid well to play the game. Part of the business is being dealt. Management will make the decisions. But certainly you could tell that even four years later, thinking back to that team they dismantled, even though they weren't playing well down the stretch, certainly not as well as this team has, um, you know, it, it's still stuck in his cross, something that, you know, didn't feel right. And I wonder how much, particularly given the context of the way this team was pulled apart, pulled asunder following the bubble run, if that will or, or if that should, inform management's thinking in the lead-up to March 21st. But given it's a different management group, and yeah, they've been through similar experiences, how much baggage do you think they have? Do you think they're, they're well aware of how that went over in the room, or are they just trying to deal with this as, as 
cold as possible. And I don't mean that from a negative standpoint. Just be calculated about it. Um, you know, be deliberate about it and not get caught in the emotion or the baggage of what this club went through two years ago now. Yeah, I mean, I, you're right. They have to turn the page on that, don't they? You're, you're right. Like, you can't be making decisions based off of a... You're making a new pact with these players as Canucks management, right? The, what happened in the past is what happened in the past. I do think that's fair. But I do also think that what happened with the team dismantling post-bubble you know, was so dramatic, right? Was and, and honestly, I think was probably traumatic in terms of its impact on this club that, that I do wonder if some, some special mind might need to be paid for it, at least in the short term, and at least considering that most of the big ticket items we're talking about as potential Canucks trade chips or what have you have term remaining and no pressure points on management to make those decisions expeditiously. Harman, you talked, though, Drancer, you talked, uh, sorry, I'll get, I'll, yeah, uh, I'll let Harman no worries. in a sec, but, you know, you talked about the impact of Markstrom and Tanev, okay, and I think all of us agreed with those decisions when they happened based on the dollars involved, and where, you know, in, in Tanev's case, where we thought his game was at in that moment, and how he was slowing down, the injury history, depreciating assets. I, I wouldn't say agreed. I think, I think agreed is too much. Well, I think okay. I think agreed is putting it. Um, I think I think the general we understood those understood that four times four did not make sense given where that player was going. But like rather than relitigating it, my point is in retrospect, after a year, yeah, the tandem effect on Quinn Hughes was important, but more than anything, it was the leadership that we see was lost, right? And we, and we talk about that that you know the, the culture, the leadership, the voices in the room, you know, the, the adults in the room. Those two guys were significant, and I think that does play into what the thought process is going to be around J.T. Miller. You know, and, and yes, they were listening, and and they weren't necessarily actively shopping, but they were willing listeners to what might be out there. But you know, now that this has gone on, and his play is so valuable, his his price has just completely escalated. You use the term "godfather offer." That's what it's going to take to move him at this point. But it, it really might be even more than that because now when you when you look at what's happened here, he is clearly the leader in that room, you know. And and the coach talked about it, the players have talked about that part of it. He even said, you know, it's a quiet room. Like you can't extricate that personality in this moment. And truly, you might not be able to to pull it at all, right? Like we talk about, just be patient until the off season. But when you look at who the actual leaders are, because one thing that the beginning of this season showed us and what last season showed us was that the room was not ready to be turned over to the kids yet it simply wasn't it was so now like can you take that chance again you need jt miller in this room big picture not micro but macro because of who he is and who his person what his personality is and what the rest of them don't currently possess it matters I think you're right, but I also think you have to be mindful of his age. You have to be mindful of the value, and you have to be mindful of the fact that if you're going to try and undo some of the damage of years of not accumulating the way a, a bad team should, right? Um, JT Miller is your best shortcut in some ways to, to creating the foundation that you're going to need to keep up not just with the Vegases and the you know, Calgary Flames of the world, but also with the Anaheims and the LA Kings in the years to come. 
um, you know, I, I do believe at this juncture, right? I do believe, and, and I'm not saying this lightly, I do believe that if there was a deal to be made with JT Miller that kept him here, that would probably be the Canucks' preference. But decisions like that don't get made in a vacuum, and an awful lot of it's going to have to do with treasure and term, right? And ultimately, too, ultimately, too, trade value. And, and in weighing those options before making that decision, I would be pretty surprised at this juncture if the Canucks took the plunge in any meaningful way before March 21st. And when you watch him just call game the way he did today, just get sick of the fuffing around and end it, um, you know, hard not to see the logic there. Hey, for those of our VIPs who want to ask a question, who want to speak with us, um, we'd love to have you, of course. And so you can raise your hand and put in a request, and then I'll call on you. You can ask a question. You can just have your say, whatever you'd like. This is an interactive live bandcast for you. And um, and we're going to start, I think, taking some questions. Arthur A. has been waiting patiently. I'm going to welcome Arthur A. to the stage. Arthur, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we, can, can you hear me? We, we got you, Arthur. Right. Have your uh, say. Uh, What's going on? First off, uh, I just want to say a uh, quick recovery to your dog, Wallace. Hope he's doing fine. <laughs> Thank you, Arthur. I appreciate it. Uh, just my question is, uh, a few weeks ago, you mentioned about having Brock Besser on the left flank of the power play. I don't know if your opinions changed on that or if you're, if you like what you saw from tonight's game. What are your thoughts? I mean, I'm a big fan of Besser at the flank. I like JT Miller at the net front. I like more change than the Canucks do. Like, I'd like to see them use those five guys because those are the right five guys, but I'd like to see them move about, you know, the one three one more than they do, to be totally honest with you. I think that would be a, a no-brainer. No but, yeah, I think Fester's best suited to playing the flank, and while he does a good job at the net front and I think has learned some of the intricacies of the game, we saw it tonight with a goal that looked positively to Folian <laughs> from, uh, from the goal line. Um, you know, I do think that I do think that ultimately he's optimized and the power play is optimized when he's on the flank. Uh, Harmon, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think he's to me when I look at Brock Besser, he's really looked a lot more comfortable than net front recently, and, and this and this current format is working. And, and I think it's interesting because Besser's success at the net front is kind of why this first unit has been clicking right now because what. I've kind of noticed over the last handful of games is that the Horvat or the Miller to Horvat uh, play that setup in the bumper isn't quite working the way it used to. It just seems like Horvat's having a tough time pulling the trigger. Um, in, in previous games, it seemed like there'd be a lot of passes and skates and that was obviously their go-to play um, in the 2019-20 season when we had the exact same um, sort of personnel. So it's kind of been like now Besser and the net fronts just kind of worked. And, and to me, like you kind of said, I, I think Besser is a pretty versatile piece in that he can play either side of the flank. Um, he's found success at the net front. It, it, kind of like what you mentioned, I like the idea of them sort of introducing a little bit more interchangeability because I think when I look at a lot of top power plays um, and Edmonton's kind of stood out in this way, they, they're, the parts are always kind of moving, right? Uh, someone like, he's, he's not healthy right now, but Jesse Pogliarvi early in the year on the Oilers power player or, or Dry Settle McDavid, they're constantly switching, switching and moving around. 
Um, and when you create that kind of motion and movement away from the puck, it just helps prevent things from getting static. And obviously that's not an issue for the club right now. But as an added, I guess, um, trick up the sleeve, um, I think it helps that you have a lot of players that are that can play a lot of different spots. Like at this point, Miller is a versatile power play piece. He can pretty much play everywhere. Um, Horvat is, I think, fine if, if you were to occasionally rotate into the net front position. So the Canucks have options here, and I think that's um, an, an encouraging sign because they're really going to need their special teams to, um, or at least their power play, to be a decisive edge for them, uh, for them to really make a run at the playoffs here. Hey, guys, you mentioned Horvat, and we gave the bouquets to the players we thought played really well at the start of all of this. I, I think... Horvat struggled tonight. I think he was average in a lot of areas uh, at key times in this game, took a selfish penalty, uh, wasn't good in the circle during some of the special team situations. Uh, if you look at uh, his underlying numbers relative to the rest of the team, which really dominated tonight, his line didn't. And I think it's tough for him because he's playing on kind of the leftover line. You know, they've clearly created a top six. Chason's kind of left there. Uh, you know, Pod Colson initially was playing with Pedersen and Hoaglander. He's not now. It really feels like that's kind of the one line <laughs> that, hasn't, that hasn't found itself yet. You know it's what I mean? The like Damon, it's, yeah, it's the Damon Lindelof line. It's the leftovers. It's the leftover <laughs> line. I love it. I'm a, I'm so, a big fan. Uh, but I'm not – like, I wasn't loving Horvat's game tonight. Uh, no, Horvat did not have a good game tonight. And in particular, um, you know – there was the defensive moment on the on the two two goal, not ideal, and there was the penalty that I mean I I my gut reaction and I haven't seen it again and I'm hesitant to use a phrase this strong publicly, but what was my reaction to you Farhan when when Bo Horvat took that penalty? Yeah, you said, you said it was a selfish play, and if it was any other person who had a tendency to show frustration that way, that's how you'd label it. So selfish probably isn't the right word. But it was it was careless. It was ill advised. It was needless in that moment. It was it clearly a penalty. It was interference, flat out. The puck wasn't was, there. It was indeed. All right, we're gonna invite Eric B to the stage. Eric B, you are on the stage. Eric B, you are on the stage. Hey guys, how's it going? <laughs> uh, going uh, on. A lot of a lot of echo going on on my end. Um, my question is about uh, how you guys feel about the stats models on the Canucks playoff chances. Uh, obviously, predominantly Dom's stats models, um, but how they measure something like the Boudreaux bump. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Eric. And sorry, Eric, I'm I'm kicking you off the stage so I don't hear myself. Um, I don't know how you listen to me, people. When I hear myself, I'm terrified. Um, <laughs> <laughs> me too. Um, so, in addition to the model projecting outcomes and running simulations similar to if you read us do like the Sedine cup or project the balance of the season following the stoppage, right? Dom's model actually simulates the results of games based on a team waiting that takes into account everything from the, uh, from player injuries, right? Who's in the lineup and who's not in the lineup. Um, it takes into account years worth of underlying data, but weights heavily, um, data more, that's, that's occurred more recently. So over the course of Boudreaux's tenure, for example, the Canucks have ticked up and up his player or his team ratings schematic, like to the point where his model, despite giving the Canucks such slim chances and, and viewing the Kings as a relative no-doubter, 
And the Vegas Golden Knights is an 80-plus percent team to make the playoffs. Um, you know, like, the Canucks rate more highly than the Kings, but not as highly as the Golden Knights. So when you see the Canucks that far behind the Kings, the model is telling you that the ground the Canucks have to make up, even against a team that they that the model believes is inferior to the Canucks, which, by the way, I don't agree with. I just want to say that, but the model does. And the model thinks the Canucks are better than the Kings under Bruce Boudreau. It accounts for the Boudreau bump and thinks the Canucks are better, but it thinks that they've lost so much ground to the Kings and have so much ground to make up that it doesn't matter. Kings are still a 78% playoff team. Canucks are probably going to be 17. Maybe they get as high as 18% following tonight uh, when the model updates tomorrow. Uh, similarly, the Golden Knights, even though they're only three points up on the Canucks, are viewed by the model as being not a juggernaut this season, not a true contender, but that next layer down. And that's not, you know, the model understands that they've struggled over the, their last 14, but they've been a buzzsaw for their last 150, and it's not going to overreact to how the Kings have performed over 17 games. That's not how the model works. So um, uh, the model does account for the Boudreaux bump. What it doesn't account for, obviously, is, you know, some of the human factors, some of the confidence things that, that have permitted this run to continue, uh, some of the vibes. It doesn't account for Boudreaux's good vibes. And, uh, and <laughs> that's not a flaw in the model. That's just how it works. Uh, if a model tried to account for vibes, it would be useless. Throw it in the trash. Um, the model, like everything else, is not meant to be more than a blunt instrument. It's a baseline that you can use as, like, objective guidance. And then you can make up your own mind, right? You can use that data and then apply your own common sense logic on top of it. So if the model says the Canucks have an 18% uh, chance of making the playoffs, and you think about, you know, what you've seen under Boudreaux and think, hey, the model's still incorporating too much data from the first 25 games of the season. The team is materially better than that. Um, you know, I think it's a little low on the Canucks. I, I, I think based on where they're at in the standings, it's probably more like a third. You know, go ahead. Feel free. Believe what you want. Um but that's sort of how the model works and, uh, and and how it accounts for the Boudreaux bump. Harmon, you understand game score value added pretty well. Anything to add that I missed there? Yeah, the only other thing to say is I think Dom had a pretty interesting breakdown. I think I want to say it was in, in his last 16 thoughts article or, or 16 stats article or maybe the one beforehand where he got, I think, this exact same question about the Boudreaux bump and sort of changed the – uh, changed his projection or simulations based off of a more generous bump um, just to see how much of difference it would be. Um, now, obviously, that was um, from a week or two ago, roughly. But I think the percentage difference was, I think it was, I, I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but I think it equated to something like a uh, a bump from 17 to 23%. So um, that's, I, I guess, maybe half a dozen percentage points or something if you were to give uh, the club um, a more generous Boudreaux bump. Um, and so, yeah, I think you can definitely check out that uh, that Dom breakdown if you're looking for a more optimistic view on this uh, on this roster and, and how the team's playoff odds may look in that sort of uh, under those sorts of assumptions. Optimism? That makes me sick. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm, I'm going to turn it over. Now we're going to invite Chet B to the stage. Chet B, I hope you have headphones and I don't hear an echo of myself. Uh, do you hear us? Chet B, call, calling once, calling twice. You guys got me? You guys got me? Yeah, we do. Right, Hello. We hey, uh, long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Uh, so the first part was uh, Farhan. Uh, I really heard you on the, uh, the Miller thing. I was worried that he might be too big a personality early on the season. He might have been stifling the kids uh, when he was more upset. Uh, second thing is, I did your guys break down on if the Canucks were an NFL team and with the win tonight, they moved to five and seven and have won a five in the last seven games. And the last question is for you, Thomas, as a PR guy, uh, I see a lot of the Ukrainian national anthems being mm-hmm. at the Canadian teams. Uh, there is a large contingent of Ukrainian uh, descent in the Valley. Uh, do you think they might be ambushing Alex Ovechkin with a Ukrainian national anthem on the, uh, <laughs> the Washington game? Thank you. Chet, thanks for your trio of questions. Um Farhan, why don't you start with the NFL question and explain to us why the Canucks are not the 2022 um, Miami Dolphins? (laughs) Yeah, the team that started, what were they, one and nine and eventually came back and all won eight in a row. Yeah, and it just shows you how hard that is, right? Like to to fall behind the way this team did uh, at Christmas and to try to get the run they're on right now. I mean, it came right down to the end and, and Miami couldn't win that final game, right? And if you look at this from an NFL standpoint, look at every, every, you know, hockey win is, or every eight hockey wins is one football win, right? Like that tells you how hard it is to climb back into this, right? So it's it certainly, um, it, it's a tall task. There, there's no doubt about it. And uh, I think that, um, you know, when you look at this team and, and what they're attempting to do right now, it's, uh, look at the standings right now. They're sitting there tied in terms of games played with both Edmonton and Vegas. They're two points back of Edmonton, four points back of Vegas. They're three points back of Dallas and Nashville. Both those teams, sorry, three points back of Dallas, four back of Nashville. Both those teams have uh, have two games in hand. So Edmonton, we thought that right at the end, two seconds left in that game. I don't know if you guys saw this earlier, but two seconds left in that game, Washington tied that game to send it to overtime at three. And right before that goal, Ovechkin got away with a brutal hook that didn't get called. So in terms of hockey gods and fairness, Edmonton did win, but it underscores the point. Like you're, you're riding so high and low with every one of these moments in these out of town games. And this is a hard thing to do what they're trying to do at this point. 
And I'm going to kick the question. One of Chet's trio of questions was on JT Miller being such a large personality that it overshadows the kids. And I'm going to kick this question to someone who's got uh, plenty of experience um, dealing with a, you know, obnoxious, uh, self-confident, self-possessed veteran, uh, Harmon Dial. Um, (laughs) What what, what are your thoughts? Is, Is JT Miller... Is JT Miller's personality a double-edged sword for this club? I think JT is a sort of person where, and too much, but I've had the chance to, um, I've been working on a really deep sort of profile Miller and, and have basically spoken to a bunch of people around him. Um, JT himself, his family members, all pretty much all of his coaches, prospect development program. And I think, it is a bit of a double-edged sword in the sense that when things are going well, Miller is the sort of piece that can really energize the club. And he's extremely vocal and he's someone that can motivate other, others. And he just brings life to a locker room, bring, brings swagger. But then on the other hand, the one thing that everyone will tell you is that when Miller sort of initially struggled in the league, sort of had to mature for, for lack of a better word, a lot of it was a lot of it falls on his competitive nature. And again, the competitive nature is what kind of drives him and, and gives him that win at all costs mentality. And you see it with the way he plays and um, how he rarely takes shifts off. But when things are going against a team, I think that's where a lot of people around Miller would tell you that he's someone that can sometimes struggle to channel his um, channel his frustration in the right way. And that's so Harman, what that's you're a, saying is he brings, he can bring the room down. Yeah, exactly. And in that moment, he's someone moment. who's brutally honest too. So there is that sort of double-edged sword where when things are going well, he's someone that's going to lift you when things aren't necessarily going well. That's where I think it can be. It's he's so, he, he, he hates losing so much that it can rub, I think people off the wrong way. And I don't think it comes from a, a bad place in Miller's heart, but it is one of those interesting things. And, and, and yet I also do think that when you look at the young core and you look at names like Pedersen and, and Hughes and, and Besser, I think we can all agree that like you were mentioning earlier, the kids also aren't ready to take on the room either. So it's a really tough situation to navigate and it's certainly not an easy decision, but I think what helps perhaps make it easier um, is, again, sort of the fact that the team isn't at um, – you, you kind of, again, have to weigh the timing of when you think this team is going to be a, a contender and whether JT fits from that from an age perspective. But um, that's, I guess, my overall thoughts on, on his personality and, and how he leads and um, the, the sort of off-ice uh, factors. And I've compared him to Ryan Kessler. And, and you know – And so is Kevin Biesa. Yeah, and, Ke- and I saw Kevin do that as well. And, and again, the high and low of it. Now, the difference is when Kessler was here, the room still belonged to the Twins, right? And even even Luongo while he was still here. And Kessler was an important part of it, make no mistake, but he still had that ability. And it got to the point that by the end in 2014 when he left, there were guys close to him that were saying, yeah, it's time for him to go because <laughs> the, 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 the impact on the room is too great right now and he clearly doesn't want to be here. JT Miller clearly wants to be here, right? I, I mean, you know, he likes his role. He likes the opportunity. He likes what this this franchise has done for his game. I mean, you know, he's like almost 20 points above his 
career average in terms of what he's what he's projecting out to get this year if it winds up going that way uh, over the these final 25 games here so um the best of JT Miller has shown up in Vancouver and and again at times the worst of it has as well and and that's what you get with that kind of personality right i mean it it's volatile and don't think a year ago that some of those young players didn't wilt under that right so you know as you say he can elevate you and he can also crush you if it's not going well well, and, and also in the fall. I mean, you think about Boudreaux's comments when he plays Pedersen with uh, Pod Colson and Hoaglander, right? They don't put pressure on him. They get along, right? Um, wasn't wasn't very difficult. You didn't need a one of those looking glass um, things. Uh, I don't know why I'm struggling to figure out what Sherlock Holmes's favorite implement is, but um, you didn't need one of those. Um, a magnifying a mag- glass? A magnifying glass? You didn't need one of those. I feel like Homer when he's listening to the wordiness tapes. Um, <laughs> uh, the you don't need one of those to read between the lines there. Uh, Chet's third question was about the Ukrainian national anthem. Oh, I oh. think I think I the think so. yeah, it was that's that's going to no, be. No, no, I'm just saying I can't see that happening because then if it does happen, it's purely about Ovechkin. Tonight Correct. they did a lot to tri- pay tribute to the Ukrainian families, and the fifty-fifty uh, is going there. And if they did that on Friday. It would purely be a vote of Etchkin, and I don't think they're going to do that. Well, and also you can't do the anthem. You can't do the anthem tonight and then pull it on Thursday without running into what the Calgary Flames did, where you look like you're, you know, um, being placated or placating of Etchkin. You know, sure, that's sure. that's the other part of it. So uh, it was a tough situation to navigate. The Canucks navigated it the way they did. Um, let's, uh, let's invite our next guest to the stage. Like me, his name is Thomas. Thomas, I hope you have headphones. I'm going to do the entire intro before you get on, just because I don't want to hear myself speak, which, you know, that's not true, but I don't want to hear myself speak (laughs) for an echo. Thomas, do we have you? Yeah, thanks guys. Um, just a quick question. You guys have mentioned his name a lot tonight, but. What does this all mean for Bo Horvat going forward here? With looks like he might be losing the leadership role a bit in the room. Is a good chance he's going to be gone this offseason, Do you think? Thank you, Thomas. Um, shall we start with Harmon, or shall we start with our foremost Bo Horvat hater, Farhan Lodge? I, 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 I don't hate Bo Horvat I, at all. <laughs> Bo Horvat is everything right uh, in that room. And listen, do not go there. Okay, you can paint me on the Alex Sedler brush, but you cannot do that with Bo Horvath. <laughs> saying a player is bad does not mean you hate him, and I never hated Edler either. But saying a player <laughs> come is on. at time, no, come on, stop it. <laughs> saying, a player, saying a player is struggling. First of all, it's impossible to hate Edler because he's the nicest guy in the world. Like you, you simply can't hate him. That's just not real. Uh, but in the case of Bo Horvath, another guy like, and you know me, like I didn't want Burray to get his number raised because of. The character side of it, right? So for me, you know, the Lindens and the Henricks and the Daniels and the Horvats, like, I love those guys. I want them to do well, but that doesn't mean they get a free pass when they're not. And you can't just have one leader, right? Like, I mean, this isn't uh, LeBron on a basketball team. You know, there's there's 23 guys here. There's other guys that are coming up and down. Bo Horvat's an important part of the team. You can't just say, well, JT Miller's the only leader. I didn't see, you know, I didn't suggest that for a minute. And I asked Bo about it earlier that, you know, does it help having that voice to help you in that regard? Because as JT Miller said, it's a quiet room, right? So you need more than one voice, right? And even a guy like OEL, a veteran that's been brought in, isn't necessarily that voice. Maybe he hasn't been here long enough, or maybe he's a little more soft-spoken, whatever whatever it is. You know, Thatcher Demko isn't 
Jacob Markstrom just in terms of personality quite yet. So no one's suggesting here that Bo Horvat has lost the room and that he's on his way out. I don't see that. I don't see that happening. But, you know, there was a time a month ago when we were first dissecting the trade deadline and we talked about four untouchables of which Horvat was one. I don't hear that anymore. I now hear three untouchables and then everything else is on the table if because of ability, age, contract, what have you. And I think Bo Horvat winds up being in that discussion. But I do think he's an important piece to this franchise and to this community. I agree with you. I think Bo Horvat's excellent. And, you know, I think ultimately, too, in weighing it all, right, you can't discount the fact that come summertime when you start talking extension with the the two of them plus Besser in the event that all three remain on this roster beyond the deadline, which I narrowly expect, you know, then you sort of get to a point where you have all the information you need to decide which way to go. Uh, That tends to be Rutherford's MO, right? Uh, Collect the data, make the decision by the time. And it's going to be fascinating to see how the Canucks navigate it because the salary on Bo interests me the most, right? When you get into that point, you know, ultimately you don't get paid to wear the C, right? Like it's the numbers that determine what your salary is. And, you know, you, you've talked before and rightfully so that there, this organization needed to do better by Bo. And initially coming into the year, they're like, okay, he's finally going to have some line mates. And now we just talked about who he's playing with. Right. So yeah. The Damon Lindelof line. Yeah. So that's not the most ideal situation for him, but that really is where it's at in terms of who's producing and who isn't, Um, you know, and that's kind of where they've gone with Bo. So, and not that it's all going to get based on this small sample size right now, but you do have to ask yourself a question. What is Bo Horvat, right? We understand that he's a good leader and him and, and JT, I think to have the volatile guy, you do need the consistency of what Bo Horvat's character and, and his leadership style is like. Right? Yeah. So that's important. But at this again, right now he's a third line center and we haven't necessarily viewed him as a shutdown matchup guy on a consistent basis, right? We know he's not necessarily a penalty killer, right? Um, you know, you, you get him out there to potentially win some faceoffs and get him off the ice and let the other penalty killers do their thing. So what is Bo besides a super, super guy? All right, let's uh, let's invite our next guest to the stage. This is Sean W. Sean, you got us? Yo, can you hear yeah. me? Hello? Yo, we can hear you, Sean. How wow. are you? Welcome to the stage. Lots of uh, feedback on the voice. Um, thank you for uh, thank you for bringing me up. Um, great leftovers reference. What an underrated show. Holy shit! <laughs> exactly. Um, careful with the sixteen stats. Thanks, Harmon. Friedman will sue you. Um, I think uh, I, I. It's funny. So much Horvath stuff. I came up to ask a Horvath question. I think a couple of things I'd say. A lot of people complain about like the leadership style. I think it's important to sort of remember that he's kind of like mentored and came up under Henrik Sedin and has sort of like a similar, more like standoffish vibe. I, I would say that that's similar in that standpoint. I, I understated, not standoffish. Yeah, understated is is probably a better better way to describe it. Um, no, I I think it's totally fair to critique the play though. Like a lot of the off puck reads and generally kind of tunnel vision in both zones is is fair. I I, I guess my, my bigger picture question outside of this year and not just sort of like the current roster, it seems clear that it's not just a matter of like finding 
good players to play with him. Like you can't just like add skill. It seems more nuanced than that to find a good fit. What do you guys view, I guess, sort of at the past five, six, seven years of watching him play? Like, what do you think profiles as the right fit for players to try and fit on that line um, to, to, to make him more successful and impactful at, at five on five? Like, what, what would you sort of be like crafting up to, to try and be a, a, a better fit? Because it, it doesn't seem like you can just like take skilled players and, and stick them there and, and it'll be successful. Thank you, Sean. I'm, I want to I want to quickly take this myself, gentlemen. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to call my own number. I'm going to hook Jeff Petrie and go it alone, a la JT Miller, um, <laughs> because the answer here is JT Miller. You know, like, uh, JT Miller was acquired. Every, first of all, every winger that the Canucks acquire, it's like finally a winger for Bo Horvat, and then they end up playing elsewhere over time. Now, is that because Bo's a straight line player or what have you? Like the one thing we really haven't seen an extended look at is Miller with Horvat. And the reason I like that in my mind's eye is, you know, you see what, for example, Pearson and Miller can do together because of how they control play down low. I mean, one thing that I think is essential if you're playing with Horvat is, is to be able to distribute the puck, you know, like Bo Horvat is great from below the hash marks. I think he's really useful attacking off the rush. I don't think he's a particularly high-end playmaker. And, and so I'd love to see him get an extended run with a playmaking winger. And as much success as JT Miller is having in the middle, I still view him as a winger. Like, I still view him as a guy best suited to playing the wing. And while I haven't exactly crunched the numbers, I do think the overall defensive impact uh tends to back me up as a trend. I need to actually dig in um, to, to where he's most effective, and I'll probably do it after the deadline when I have a moment to breathe. But I wonder if I wonder if that's sort of the best fit, at least that currently exists on, on the team. Uh, Harmon, I, lo- I love to get your X's and O's thoughts. What do you think? No, 100%. Playmaking presence was the first thing that um, I sort of thought of, and especially it would be helpful, too, if you could have someone who – can I think transition the puck up the ice because I don't think Horvat Horvat's not like a traditional center to me in the sense that a lot of a lot of the times you expect your centers to ha- to handle a lot of the zone exits and, and carry the puck through the neutral zone whereas I think Horvat's a lot more in terms of rush offense he's a lot more like a winger where he's usually the first guy up the ice and he's really good in that role but it'd be great to have a winger that can kind of get him the puck and can come below and, and do um, and, and, and carry a lot of the responsibility. So I think Miller checks that box. Um, he's also a great playmaker off the rush. Um, and so I think, I think those two qualities, just a playmaking presence and someone who's good in transition. I think those are the two, two first things I'd be looking at in terms of an ideal Horvat, uh, Horvat winger. Um, I, Miller would kind of be you know what, for me, it's it's door number C. I think Bo Horvat is affected most by the fact this defense can't transition the puck, right? And we see that moment time and time again. If Quinn Hughes isn't getting him the puck, I mean, he needs somebody to get it to him in stride so he can play that straight line game as opposed to having to create from inside his own blue line. Like it just, if they were better moving the puck, I think it would help him. Whereas the other guys can create the offense themselves. I mean, you saw what Miller did tonight. You're seeing what Pedersen's doing. 
Horvat needs that distributed to him. So as much as it'd be great if he played with a playmaking winger, it'd also be nice if he had some defensemen who could get him the fucking stride. And like, I was just going to add, like, watching Nils Hoaglander last season when he was really on top of his game, I wonder if, I really think a prime sort of like up to his ceiling, Nils Hoaglander would be a really good fit too. Because when I, when I look at rookie Nils Hoaglander, what did he do really well? Well, he was, I think, when you look at a lot of the shot assist data, he was setting up a lot of chances um, as a playmaking threat. He was creating a lot of offensive entries. He was pretty crafty down low and had that um, sort of chemistry to also be able to control play down low. Um, now, obviously, Hoaglander hasn't been as good this season, but if Nils Hoaglander sort of hits on his ceiling and hits on his potential, I also like that potential combination with Horvat. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't disagree there. Um, no, no question about it. All right. Hey, let's go to, and I, I, excuse me in advance if I pronounce your name wrong, please correct me when you come on. Uh, but Tarek, we're going to go to Tarek now. You got us? Uh, Tarek. yes, I do. Thanks for having me on guys. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's Tarek, but it's all Tarek. good. All right. Thank uh, you, sir. Uh, I wanted to say something about Garland tonight. I know everybody's talking, obviously, about Besser and Pedersen and Miller after the points they put up. But I'm watching that game in the second period. Uh, there was a several plays down low where, where Garland had like two big Montreal defensemen like draped over him, and he's like <laughs> drop, you know, dropping a shoulder. I think you know the play I'm talking about. Trance, I and do. He comes up with it behind the net, and I'm thinking. How does he still have the puck? I mean, I know there's been some talk of, oh, he's not a Rutherford guy. I mean, that strikes me as something where, you, as a new management group, moving out a guy like that doesn't seem like something you're going to win, or a trade you're going to win. So I was just wondering what your guys' thoughts are on Garland. He's so effective as a four-checker, and, and I think he's a big reason why Pedersen looks so much better. I, I think those are all good points. Um, sorry, Tarek, right? Did I mess yeah, up yeah. again? No, that's no. right. All right, perfect. Thank you so much for your question, Tarek. I agree with you. I, you know what? I thought for long stretches of this game that Connor Garland looked like Vancouver's most dangerous forward. And in addition to the forechecking work, in addition to the spins along the wall, in addition to the low center of gravity, in addition to the work rate, the competitiveness, the grit, um, Connor Garland, I think, at least at five on five, as much as we talk about Miller's playmaking profile, I think Garland's the best playmaker. I think he's their best passer. Straight up. At five on five, I think he's the guy. And I do agree with you. I think that helped. That has helped Pedersen a ton. When you put your best passer with your best, especially when he's a righty, with your best lefty shooter, right? Your best one-shot scorer, one of the best one-shot scorers in the league. Yeah, it works. It looks great. Farhan. Connor Garland, give him some love. Yeah, Connor Garland, you know, I, I think he's a good fit on that line with uh, with Pedersen as well, right? I mean, I think they both play with a lot of pace. I think they're starting to learn how to play with, with each other. You know, remember how tough it was for players to learn how to play with the Sedins with that cycle game? And it, it almost seems like the spin cycle game of Connor Garland takes some time, and I think Pedersen's figured it out, right? And I thought Hoaglander was pretty noticeable. I think this kid's on the verge of, of breaking out, uh, you know, if this team does go on the run, everyone's expecting, I think his fingerprints are going to be all over it because of the amount of ice time he's getting right now. And he's starting to play all 200 feet. I mean, there were a couple of back checks tonight that were very good by, by um, 
uh, Hoaglander. So I, you know, I think that line is is going to get better and better as opposed to just being about Pedersen having found his game. I I, I agree a hundred percent. I'm going to go back to the stage. We're going to go back and we're going to invite up. We have two people in the queue, so this is your last chance. If you want to ask a question, put your hand up because we're getting close to midnight. And you know that means for me that's when I want to watch hockey games. <laughs> but I know that I know that Farhan I know that Farhan's getting sleepy, a little bit cranky. <laughs> Not at all. I am happy to be here, my guy. So last chance, last call for for people to raise their hands. If um if your hand's not raised by eleven fifty, um we're we're closing it then. That's that's the um. That's when we start to charge cover. <laughs> you know what? I, that's not true. We have already charged cover. You're all VIPs. So thank you very much for your support, as always. We love having you. We want to get to as many of you as you can. If you put your hand up by eleven uh, by eleven fifty, I promise we'll get to you. Otherwise, we're uh, we're gonna you know put a bow on this and, and move on. But in the meantime, I've got Jordan J. Jordan J. coming to the stage. Jordan, you got us. Hey guys, hey, can you hear me? We can. Okay, so I want to start by saying I completely agree with Tom that this decor is not good enough to win. Um, yep. And I agree that your third pair should be put in a position where they can extrapolate value, right, picking on lower matchups. Yeah. My, my question, like, I understand that Rathbone was hurt for a little bit and he couldn't come up. Um, but what are you guys seeing from the third pair, maybe specifically, like, Hunt over this last, like, 10 to 15 games? that's allowed Vancouver to be playing well, is it really just top six and Demko, or is are we actually getting value from our defense? It's a good question. I'm going to kick it to the data man. I'm going to kick it to the boy genius. Thanks for your question again, Jordan J. Harmon, what's making the third pair tick? Honestly, I think Brad Hunt has been a lot more stable, and I think I thought about it on the road trip because – the constant, I think Kyle Burrow said it best um, earlier in the season is he's playing best when no one notices him or no one talks about him. Well, what's happening right now? No one's talking about Brad Hunt. Like, I think this has been a 10 or 15 game stretch where nobody's really complained about him aside from maybe once in a while being like, oh, why is he still on the second unit power play? But I think he's been really calm and really composed. Um, he's moved the puck pretty well. Um, which I think has been important because I think Hamannick is still Hamannick's on the score sheet, but I, I still think he's had in there with his puck management, and I still think since returning to to the lineup that he's been he's still not at 100% in terms of the. And I think Hunt has just played mistake-free hockey. He's kept it simple, and um, I think he's quietly racked up. Um, if you if you look if you look at um, uh, the point totals of the last handful of games, he's gone in on the score sheet as well. And I think even tonight, um, that line spent or that D pair spent a lot of time in the offensive zone. So um, I think with Hunt, he's kind of been able to find his groove here a little bit. He's obviously got a coach here in Boudreaux who really trusts him. And I'm sure that helps in terms of earlier in the season, he was in and out of the lineup and um, he struggled initially. And he was also kind of, I think if you look at his PDO, he had a lot of bounces go against his way as well. And I think now you're starting to see the player that um, he's been more or less for um, most of his career, which is just a steady, unspectacular um, number six defenseman. And, and that, and I do think the third pair has been a lot better over the last five to ten games or so. Yeah, they yeah. definitely yeah. have. So let's let's run down the numbers here because I was curious to check. Over the Canucks' last 15 games, Brad Hunt has played 13 games. He's got the best 
shot attempt differential on the team. He's plus 17 over that stretch. He's got the second best behind only Quinn Hughes. Decent company, that. Uh, in terms of shot differential, he is plus 21. Uh, in terms of goals for percentage, he's plus six. The Canucks have outscored the opposition 10 to four with Brad Hunt on the ice at five on five, dating back 13 games. Now, the bad news here is he's got he's running with a 104.4 PDO, right? So he's got a 9.58 on ice save percentage. So why are we talking about Brad Hunt? Why are we not noticing any loud mistakes? Every shot that's being taken with him on the ice is being stopped. And no one remembers the mistake that leads to the big save. They only remember this the mistake that leads to the goal, typically speaking. So Brad Hunt's not giving fans those emotional moments of disappointment as such. Um, you know, he's flying under the radar and playing well. Look, Brad Hunt is the least of this team's problems. He is... An NHL defender, period, full stop. He's playing well for this team. Harmon brings up the second unit, and and we'd be remiss to not talk about this. Two things that are a little worrying to me. One, in the last three games, so dating back to the Islanders, the Canucks have gotten beat off of set draws following face-offs. Those are coach-driven. Those are that's a coach-driven thing, right? Alain Vigneault's teams, year after year, outscored teams off of draws within like ten seconds of draws. Um, not just in Vancouver, but in New York and even in Philly when and Philly sucked. And um, you know that's that's something they're they're going to have to iron out. They're going to have to do some work on because those are the types of goals against, like the one tonight, that makes a game that should have been a blowout interesting until the final minute. Uh, the other thing is Brad Hunt. Like, I'm fine with Brad Hunt on the power play. I actually think he might be their second-best power play option among their defensemen that are currently in the lineup. But it has to be as the first one of a 1-3-1, not as the right three <laughs> of the 1-3-1. Um, you know, you've got Vasily Podkolzin, who's third among Canucks forwards at 5-on-5 five five in goals, not playing on the power play. You've got Niels Hoaglander, clearly more creative, um, in in that type of role than than what you're going to get from Brad Hunt. Uh, you know, Brad Hunt's got a blast. He can rip it. He can move the puck intelligently. I think he can help you key a breakout if you put him at the at the base of the one through one, or not the base, but I guess the top of the one through one. Um, I'm totally happy with that. But playing three forwards two D, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And you just hope that it doesn't cost this team games down the stretch. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Going to go to our next guest, Cole P. Cole, welcome to the stage. Thank you for joining us. Do you hear us? Yeah, do you got me? Yeah. We do. Awesome. Hey, thanks, guys. This is uh, this is a real cool format. Uh, two questions related on uh, Coach Boudreau. First off, if the Canucks do uh, defy the odds and make the playoffs, do you think he's a shoe-in for the Jack Adams? And and second, uh, we talk about the Boudreau bump a lot, but do you think we've seen enough of a sample size that Boudreau has actually perhaps gotten out of this team with what Jim Benning was hoping it would be with all his putting all his chips in at the beginning of the season. Thanks. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a hard question. I like it. Farhan. Was Jim Benning, <laughs> was, was Jim Benning right? Do we owe him? A no, no, we don't. We don't. <laughs> Not at all. Jim, you know, Jim Benning is, he's, he's the reason they got into the mess in the first place. I mean, the, the short sighted decisions that were made throughout his tenure, uh, just giving ridiculous term for bottom of the lineup players, the number of inefficient deals, the number of no trade, uh, no trade clauses, no movement clauses. You look at, you know, the Oliver Ekman Larson situation, like how much better has it made this team? And, and I'm not down on him, right? Like he's a legitimate NHL defenseman, but is he a, is he a legitimate top four defenseman? Is he a guy that should be getting this level of ice time? We saw about a two month bump from him at the start of the season. And we thought, okay, there was a bounce back effect to him. It wasn't going to be as bad as it was in Arizona, but he's been pretty ordinary since, as I see it, you know, the, the, the mistakes haven't been outweighed by dynamic offensive production, which we thought we might get for a short period of time. So again, you had an opportunity there to take your medicine, to suck up the last couple of years of those contracts. Instead, you've not put a $6 million or $7 million six year anchor on this team that now the new management group is going to have to fix because the D is simply not good enough, right? I mean, you made an attempt at Tyler Myers. You got it wrong. You made an attempt at Oliver Ekman Larson. You got it wrong. And those are big, big anchors that this team is going to have to dig itself out from. Those are basically my thoughts. I tend to agree. I mean, one thing I'd say is, you know, I think this roster has overperformed under Boudreaux. But I do think that they've shown us that they're probably somewhere between the 15th and the 20th best roster in the NHL, right? I mean, they're at least that. And maybe maybe you, if you want to pick 13, 14, 
Um, you know, I'd probably disagree with you, but I, I wouldn't disagree with you that strenuously, right? Yeah, but you know what, for me, I, I think that um, what he did build, he did build, nine, though, he did build, though, Farhan, a fringe playoff team that underperformed for a variety of reasons, some of, some of which might not be directly attributable to their team construction, although some of them definitely were, particularly uh, the penalty killers, the lack of quality penalty killers on this team. Uh, but, but, you know, for sure, I think it's fair to say that this roster is at least fringe playoff team quality. And the problem with that, in my view, is not, oh, like, wow, you know, this team is as advertised, a fringe playoff team. Um, the problem with that is you're all in to build that? Like, why? <laughs> what are we even doing here? It's not good enough. And the fact that it's a fringe playoff team that's near impossible to improve, in my view, without significant surgery, without sending really good players out, uh, something that I still think is going to be necessary, whether or not it happens at this deadline or at the draft or even next deadline or next season, like, it's inevitable that that's going to have to happen because this team doesn't have the levers they're going to need to take the step from fine to good and from good to great without making some really tough decisions here. And that's the problem. That's the problem. That's why I don't think there's anything that can happen on the ice between now and the end of the season, short of the Canucks winning a couple playoff rounds, that's going to change the fact that this team did need a change in terms of executive leadership. Harmon, chime in. No, I think you guys nailed pretty much everything there was uh, to be said kind of on that topic, to be honest. I don't, I don't think I have a lot to add. I think the, yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot to add there. Fair enough. Harmon, or sorry, Farhan, chime in. What you got? Oh, I thought I went hard on it right off the bat, but it, it, you know, it was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, when you look at it, you know, you, I think we all felt that, the top nine forward group is going to be the best we've seen under his tenure, right? Uh, or at least since the Twins retired. And, and we thought there was going to be more there. And ultimately, um, you know, they underperformed for green. They're, they're probably overperforming right now because we are seeing a team that is scoring. We're seeing a team that as much as we want to talk about how they've relied on Demko, you know, the last couple of weeks, that's turned a bit. And, and not that Demko has played poorly, but just that they've been able to score. You know, last four starts, he's given up 12 goals and they've won all four of those games. So. They're doing some things. The shooting percentages are, are up as you'd expect, but just in terms of the overall roster construction, especially on the blue line. And listen, give him credit; he tried, but wow, was it flawed? Uh, yeah, I think no question about it. But it is an interesting question, and this team has performed at least to the level where it's a worthwhile topic of conversation. It's not something we can laugh out, laugh at, right? I mean, it's something we have to think about, address, address fairly. And I think that needs to be mentioned, particularly as, you know, I, I only think Jim Benning's legacy is going to get more complicated in this market as the years go on. And as some of the players that were added during his tenure, particularly Pedersen and Hughes and, and certainly Thatcher Demko, level up, while at the same time, some of the ways that the team's hands were tied, uh, everything from Brock Besser's qualifying offer to the OEL anchor to 
you know, the Jason Dickinson contract, the Travis Hamonick contract, the Tanner Pearson Tyler contract. Tofo- Tyler Toffoli, when that, there was, there was right. a what if the Flames to getting that done. Right. What if the Flames win the, win the cup? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, what happened last year when he was in Montreal. Mean, if the Flames win the cup and the Canucks make the playoffs, then Jim Benning will have constructed both a contender and a playoff team. <laughs> you got to give yeah, them yeah. some credit. My, so, my- I was just going to say, my biggest thing was just, even if they do make the playoffs, in my opinion, it's just like that, that's too low of a bar when it's year eight of rebuild and considering the risks you took to construct the team in terms of the OEL contract, in terms of trading away a top 10 pick, um, in, in the contracts that you signed and the fact that there is such limited flexibility when you look at the team's cap friendly page and, and the contracts you can move out. I just think when you look at what the team was able to accomplish in the 2020 uh, 2019-20 season, like that's that that was a new baseline. Like that, you have to improve on that. And because just because the team took a step back and um and missed the playoffs last season, doesn't mean the bar is now okay. Let's make the playoffs again. If it's year eight of rebuild. I mean, you need I think to be in to be in a much better position to actually contend. Is is the, my biggest takeaway. So even if they make the playoffs again. Like you kind of mentioned, unless they win a couple playoff rounds and unless we're talking about this team as a cup contender, I don't think it changes a whole lot, especially because of the lack of flexibility in terms of future steps. Yeah, yeah. three points yeah. out with the teams you're trailing having two games in hand and you're what, 10th in the, you're 10th in the conference. You're 10th in the conference by point percentage, right? Um, you know, I know that this team is on a heater and that there are a segment of hardcore fans that are super excited about that. And they should be. You know, one thing I like about this team right now, I watched them forecheck the Canadians into oblivion in the first, and I'm like, hey, that's fun. That's fun. The Canucks are playing like they're the Rams defensive line. Like, let's go. Um, but, you know, what, what, why are we trying to celebrate 10th in the division? Right? Like, we'll see where this goes. Obviously, they're second in the NHL by point percentage since Boudreaux took over. But 10th in the, 10th in the division overall, a lot of work to do. Um, we can we can let the next 24 games play out. This team's going to tell us who they are over that stretch, and and then we can discuss it. Because right now, you know, I, I just don't I don't see the case for I don't see the case the, I don't see a really compelling case anyway for um, you know th- this was an elite team misunderstood earlier in the year. I, I, you know, I think they were a better team than they looked like. I, th- I think they're not quite the team that they've looked like uh, while they've been on this Boudreaux heater over the past two months or two and a half months, three months, I guess. So we've seen two months of trash, <laughs> three months of, you know, or certainly December was extraordinary. January and February were kind of like, eh. And then they've, well, sorry, January the first half of February. And then the last three weeks, they've been fantastic again. And especially the last five games, they've been fantastic again. So... You know, if you're never as good as you look at your best and never as bad as you look at your worst, um, you know, this team's going to tell us who they are down the stretch. And and looking at the long view, you know, I I expect they'll fall short. But, hey, it's sports. Crazy things happen. That's why we watch. Speaking of why we watch, we like to we do this to chat with the VIPs. We do this for you. We're so appreciative of your support. We've got one last we've got one last hand up in the queue. It's from Blaine. Blaine, welcome to the stage. Hey guys. Pleasure Hello. With you. Likewise. <laughs> I've been following the uh, the van slash uh, 
uh, an X-Cast. <laughs> we appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, um, so I had a question before, and it was sort of tailored differently, but then you brought up a good point that I think is a little bit more on the nose. That being, you know, you said connects are sort of around second in points overall since Boudreaux took over. And my thought is, because there's a lot of, you know, criticism and, and justly so with the team in terms of their performance even through that stretch, because there are holes and there are things we can all identify. What do you think are the things that are still weak points in the team? I mean, are they overreaching through that period of time? Are they, are they legitimately starting to hit their bar of where they potentially could be? I mean, we can all agree there's some really good pieces there, some, some good veteran threads that weave through the team and, and the fabric of the team. And, um, you know, and obviously there's a whole new plethora of, of uh, leadership that's going to take it down the road and, and start to make some changes and, and taking the time to do so. But when they observe this team, like you guys are, what are you looking at? Like, what are you seeing as those those weak points in the team, even through this heater of a run? Um, should they mm-hmm. playoffs or not? Yeah, you know what? It's a really good question, Blaine. Thank you so much for asking it. This is our last question, and you know what? It's a good way to it's a good way to close out what was really a post game van cast at the first half, and then became something a little different, something a little wider ranging about this team's overall direction. So. As this team has gone through a heater, right, they've shown us their best. And yet, you know, I do think as you watch this team play games, there's some evident flaws. Farhan, what are some of those issues that you're seeing crop up despite the the run of positive and favorable results? Yeah, I mean, when you look in terms of stylistically, I mean, their, their forecheck, which was so good right when Boudreaux took over, has continued to get better, right? And I think that they've stuck to that and they've refined it and they've been better at it. But in terms of how this team breaks the puck out, uh, I still think there are real concerns there because it still leads to far too many turnovers, far too many high danger chances, uh, doesn't necessarily allow this team to play with skill and play with speed on a regular basis, right? You know, when you look at this team in terms of how it's constructed, it might not necessarily be constructed to forecheck, but they kind of don't have a choice because they're not necessarily going to get the puck in ways to let them play off the rush. So, you know, it, like I said, it it creates turnovers. It puts a lot of stress on the goaltender, you know, and they are leaning on the goaltender, right, to the point where we all kind of think that Demko is either playing through something or fatiguing a little bit, right? And so so that part of it is, has been a challenge, right? Now they're scoring, certainly, so that's allowed them to take a little bit of pressure off Thatcher, but... Just the way we keep harping on it, the way the defense is constructed and where those flaws specifically lie um, in terms of how they transition and break out and in terms of how they defend, I think is where the the biggest challenges are right now. Dead on, Harmon. Yeah, and I think that's why they're so reliant on the forecheck, kind of like you mentioned, is because it's really tough to create in transition and off of the rush when you can't, um, when you don't have that quick strike element and that speed. Um, and that also applies a little bit up front in terms of the lack of pace there. So once you eliminate the ability to kind of attack off the rush, you're a more one-dimensional offensive unit, and you become a team where the, the forecheck is, is really the most important box to tick off. And if you're an opposing team and you have the speed and skill to kind of beat that forecheck, it's, it, 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 you can beat 
you can beat Vancouver. There aren't a whole lot of other elements to their offensive attack. Um, obviously, their penalty kill has improved recently, but I still think in the bigger picture, like when I look at the forward group, for instance, or even on the back end, outside of Talon Mott, I don't see a lot of high-end penalty killers. Um, tell tell and, them what you told me. Tell, tell them what you told me during the game when, uh, when Tyler Mott was out there on the PK. Yeah, I was just saying chasm between Mott and every other penalty killer on the ice with the Canucks is, ma- is, is mammoth. It's enormous. It's like watching Mott on the PK when you like really, really focus and pay attention to how he takes passing lanes away, how he reads and anticipates, how he uses his speed to close down plays. It's like he's, it's like he's on a different planet. It's like he, it's like, it's like watching, it's like you're watching the AHL and you're watching an NHL player. It's like that big of di- of a difference in terms of wow he's 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 something else and I think that just kind of underscores um, the difference in quality there and one thing I want to also clarify with this team is I think there's been a big discussion about obviously far from being a contender and I think when we discuss this roster it's not that this roster is necessarily in a vacuum like if you wanted to argue to me that on paper based off of based off of what we've seen with Boudreaux that this is a a roster that could have made the playoffs if Boudreaux took over at the start of the season fine I actually could see the argument because you've got a decent top nine um there are obviously some flaws in the back end with the PK but you've got a great goaltender but the issue is with the pieces that are left that you would need to construct a contender i.e. right shot defenseman I think at least probably three more high-end D, um, and sort of and sort of plugging in a lot of the other holes on this uh, holes on this roster. It's it's difficult to it's kind of like a how do you improve that? How do you improve? How do you find those next three or four pieces? If this team had let's say cap space, if this team had um, a lush prospect pool and lots of assets to where you could look at the team and go in the offseason, well boy, they've got a deep prospect pool to where they can trade picks and prospects and they can go out and, and make a run Jacob Chikrin or they can, um, they can go out and be active in free agency or they have, this, they have a lot of cap space to work with and they can poach Navage type opportunity or the next Devin Taves type opportunity. Then you, might, then you would look at this roster and go, there are a lot of foundational building blocks and, and really this team doesn't maybe necessarily retool and we'd, we'd be talking about well, let's hit the accelerator. So the problem this is with with the with the team in the bigger picture isn't that you don't have a have a strong foundation because you do have a strong. It's that you have such and and I know Drance, you've talked about this. It's the lack of flexibility to actually improve on it, and that's why you hear a lot of discussion about you know us sort of pulling for pulling for a retool and, and that you need to take a step back to take two steps forward. I think that's really important to clarify because again, it's not about this roster necessarily being so bad and so terror far away from contention. Um, it's more just about, man, improving is, is going to be really hard and finding those remaining pieces. Well, yeah. And it's not, a, it's not about the, it's not about the fact that this team is so bad or, or what have you. It's that, it's that if this is your all-in year, right? Like, this city watched, you know, Jason Megna, Eric Goodbranson, the depths of the Louis Erickson years, right? All this miserable hockey. Years 
of hockey that was only made entertaining by the athletes and the profis, right? Let's be honest. Let's be honest, right? Uh, years of that um, for effectively this, right? Like years of rebuilding, years of picking in the top five or certainly the top ten, uh, you know, sixth overall in, in 2014, right? Then you go fifth overall in 2015, uh, 20, yeah, uh, sorry, 2016 with, with Ole Olenek. Um, Petey goes off the board, fifth overall, Quinn Hughes, seventh overall, right? Ninth overall last season, 10th overall in 2019. I mean, that's years, right? You made, you, this team's made the playoffs once in an 82 game season since 2013. Oh no, since 2012, because 2013 wasn't an 82 game season. So that's 10 years. And this team's qualified for the playoffs once over a full season. And this is what has been built as a result, right? Within a system that rewards you for being bad, this is the all-in shot. And, you know, Farhan mentioned the backup goalie, right? Right now, the Canucks clearly don't have a backup goalie they can trust to help spell a starter who's never been to a full-season workhorse, who the next time he appears in a game will be appearing in the most games he's ever played in a single season. Um, they don't have a backup they trust right now. And that backup that they don't trust right now has an NMC that makes them difficult to move and at least $1.25 million in bonuses that are going to hit the books next year, further limiting your flexibility to improve. This defense core, right, is is playing pretty well defensively in my view, but, you know, we talk about the forecheck. Like, I actually think their ability to transition with control is worse now than it was earlier in the season, partly because they don't even try. They just go punt and hunt. And... When you think about that, when you think about the teams that give this Canucks team trouble, it's if you can beat their forecheck with any type of consistency, right? It's not it's not that they're overly reliant on the forecheck. It's that they have no answer for that. There is no plan B when a team persistently, consistently, and with any sense of purpose beats their forecheck. That's a flawed team. You don't want to be there. You want to be that team in an all-in season. And then you go up and down the forward ranks and you know, there's a lot to like, especially with how that fourth line has emerged and played extraordinary hockey. 56% expected goals with that trio on the ice. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. And yet, I still see a group that just sort of lacks toughness. I, I see a group that, you know, at the end of the day, they're productive. There are some dynamic pieces. But even just isolating to up to the to the pieces up front, you know, I don't know, I don't know that they're like. In addition to everything else, I don't know that there's enough elite talent on this roster, and that's the hardest stuff to find. And now, especially with how Demko's playing, you're never going to be bad enough, really, to get to the top of the draft order again. So you're kind of just stuck, and. As the years go by, I worry that those sins multiply, particularly because there is nothing significant coming aside from Rathbone and maybe Danila Klimovich. And, you know, it's going to be a really tricky tightrope to walk for Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin. And the one thing that I'm positive about is I think they've watched this team with a hearty dose of skepticism. They're not, they're not, there's no skin in the game for them. Um, I think they'd love for this team to make the playoffs. I think they 
understand that that would be good for the overall health of the organization and the development of players. But I also think their eyes are pretty firmly trained down the road, as they should be. And that's not to say we'll see fireworks before March 21st. I think with every Canucks win, that gets more and more unlikely. But, you know, I, I do think that they are mindful of the fact that surgery is going to be needed to, you know, flesh out what they've got organizationally and, and ensure that there are brighter days ahead. And, and that's their primary task. Last thing is on the subject of the, of the D that can beat the Canucks four check, give the Canucks trouble. The Caps, not the fastest defense core, but like Orlov, Carlson, like they've got guys who can move the puck, right? That's going to be an interesting matchup for the Canucks. The Tampa Bay Lightning, they're going to be tired. They're playing their fifth game in eight days when they come on Sunday, and it's the second leg of a back-to-back. That's a pure schedule win, as decisive a schedule win as it gets, in fact. But that D, they can move the puck. Um, then you've got the Devils. Uh, we'll see if they move some pieces. Severson, Segan, uh, Thaler, some of those players. But we saw them the other day. Like, they can move the puck. Um, the Detroit Red Wings, Moritz Sider. Troy Stetcher, if he's still on the team. Like, there's some guys there that can move the puck, right? That can beat a four-check. Then you've got the Flames. That's a schedule loss for Calgary. Um, they can't move the puck. No one except Shillington can really skate it out of trouble. That's a team that Vancouver matches up pretty well with. And then you've got the Buffalo Sabres, second leg of a back-to-back for the Canucks. That's a schedule loss for Vancouver. But the Buffalo Sabres, not very good. They can do one thing pretty well. They can move the puck. So... We're about to see a run of opponents, a run of games that should be winnable. And yet, in terms of the primary matchup that Vancouver has leaned on to win games, all of these teams present some issues. And it's going to be fascinating to watch how it all plays out in real time as the Canucks chase a playoff spot. Farhan, Harmon, I had a great time with you guys tonight. I hope you had fun. Hey, we had fun as always. And look, the Canucks, you know, we, we're going to get into the big picture conversation as we head into the trade deadline. But, you know, everyone else is just looking at these 24 games and can they stay relevant? Can they stay relevant until March 21st? Can they stay relevant in this race after that? They certainly got off to a good start tonight. This, of course, is going to be posted as well. We were live, but you're also going to be able to hear this on The Athletic. We'll be back again next Monday. Our show next Monday will include Ryan Johnson. Um, yes, that should be a lot of fun as we talk to him heading into the deadline, but, uh, over the course of the next few days, if you're looking for other podcast platforms on the athletic network, you can uh, check out the athletic hockey show on Thursday with Ian Mendez and down goes Brown. As for us, uh, thanks for listening to the VanCast live and on demand after the fact, please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review right now. You can get annual subscriptions to the athletic for just $1 a month for six months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. Hey, it's the Canucks with weekend home games against the Capitals and Lightning. Uh, We'll be back on Monday. And the boy genius, I am so looking forward to this JT Miller piece, my friend. Thank you. I'm really excited to put it together. Yeah, thanks for joining us, everybody. I think we're going to try and do these pretty regularly. Like, I think we might... Do them on a, on a, if not weekly basis, pretty close to it. I'd expect that we'll try and do one after any big move. The Canucks make a trade at the deadline, on deadline day itself, regardless of what they do as a wrap. I think we're going to try and do these pretty often because, honestly, we love them. We have a lot of fun, and we're so appreciative that all of you have joined us, that you ask such good questions, that you engage with us so 
voluminously in the chat. Thank you. Just thank you so much for your support, for following this team with us. You guys are what make it fun for us. So thanks. We'll do it again. We'll chat with you all soon. Have a good night. It was a big win for the Canucks at Rogers Arena. That's it for the live bandcast. We're signing off. All the best.